Our text today is Acts chapter 20. I looked it up and 13 months ago we did Acts chapter 19. What did we do in the ensuing 13 months? We did Romans for over a year. Uh, Kind of amazing when you look at it. Um, But because we're kind of stepping into the middle of the chronology again. We'll have to back up just a tad into chapter 19 of Acts and then pull forward into our text today so you get a bit of a sense of the sweep of what's going on. Now, it's interesting on my end in that when you're studying Romans, it's like this massive theological in-depth every single week. It's like you're trying to write a systematic theology every week. And you would think that coming to Acts is like, oh good, breath of fresh air, this is going to be easy. Uh, It's not easy, it's just different. Because now I'm trying to hold the chronology of events that are not blatantly evident in Acts. Which you might think, oh, well, he went from here to here. Well, it doesn't say that in Acts. It says it over in 1 Corinthians. Or it doesn't say that in Acts. It says it over here in another spot. So you're trying to piece together this, um, this chronology. And it just reminds me that our ancient writers did not think the way we think. If I was going to tell the story, I would have gone to journalism school. And I would figure out, you know, A to B to C to D. And they're not doing that. They're not writing a documentary. We have to remind ourselves of that. It's recording events and major pieces under the inspiration of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is leaving these breadcrumbs for our good. We have to remember that. So, if you take a look at your map, it has two maps on it, intentionally. The one on the left-hand side, and in fact, if you're listening to this on the uh, online or watching it or listening to it later, make sure you print out the handout. I don't care if you're jogging on your uh, treadmill. Put the map in front of you, otherwise you'll get lost. Um, find Ephesus on the map. Yeah. Right? That's where we begin. That is in Acts chapter 19. Paul has been in Ephesus for three years. He didn't just pass through. He set up and established a headquarters of sorts and has been working to disciple and build the church in Asia Minor. If you were to take your map and zoom out, you would see this is the western edge of Turkey, modern day Turkey. The city of Ephesus, if you would visit it today, does not exist. It's just a bunch of ruins because the Mediterranean Sea moved. And it's no longer a port city, it's inland too far to pull up a boat into the dock. It just, it just doesn't exist. So it makes it kind of interesting. Now, 
when Paul was in Ephesus, you, if you're looking at in your Bible in chapter 19, um, he had some trouble that he heard about in the city of Corinth that he had set up the church there. So he wrote, wrote 1 Corinthians while in Ephesus to help correct some of those things. And so we did an entire study on 1 Corinthians. However, his instructions didn't, uh, let's just say they were not taken well. Um, they ignored certain elements. So Paul actually visited Corinth and had to have a very difficult conversation with his church there. We find this alluded to in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians verse 1, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1, it reads, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. That suggests there was one. But we don't have a record, any record of it other than this. And then in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, it says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. In other words, there is a missing letter to the Corinthians. We have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians. This is Corinthians 1a. We don't know what's in it, but you can imagine that it was pretty, probably strongly worded. He then sent Timothy to Corinth, probably with that severe letter, saying, uh, I need to have somebody I trust to walk into that mess and see if we can fix things. And then had arranged to meet Timothy somewhere in Macedonia. Now Macedonia is northern Greece. So if you're looking at that map, you see the big words Macedonia in the upper left-hand corner. That's that higher northern part. And then Achaia is the southern part where you have Athens and Corinth. And Achaia was also called Greece. Very rarely do you have Macedonia being called Greece. Achaia is called Greece. Again, I just, just relax if you don't like geography. You're just going to have to deal with it today. <clears throat> but I feel it's important to get a context of what's going on in the life of Paul and in the life of his ministry. Well, you find in the second half of chapter 19 in F. Ephesus that after these three years, obviously the church had grown to a point that it began to disrupt the normal life of the city. And so a silversmith by the name of Demetrius in verse 24 was getting a little torqued because he created miniature idols for the temple to Artemis. Oh, yes. And suddenly he didn't make his quota or his annual report was bad, so his stockholders were having a stockholder revolt. His board of directors wanted to remove him from the silversmith shop. I'm making that all up. Otherwise, in other words, he was upset. And so began riling up 
other merchants, and other people, and it became a riot. Now, when we studied this a year and a half ago, well, 13 months ago or so, uh, we had come out of a couple year period in our own country where there were a number of riots and we got to watch them in live television. These aren't organized, quiet protests. These were loud and raucous and violent in many cases and incredibly destructive. So imagine all of these workmen, all the similar trades, they go after Paul's people. It says in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged, crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was the city, not the block, not the downtown area. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed into the theater. This theater sat 5,000 people. So it was not a small place. That would be the size of the uh, mullet arena where the coyotes play hockey. That seats 5,000 people. That's the comparison. So they went to the hockey stadium, I mean, the theater. <laughs> And they dragged two of Paul's helpers, uh, disciples, into the theater. Now imagine, did they just walk quietly or were they were drugged? They pulled them in, which suggests rocks are going to come next. Paul wanted, it says here, Paul wanted to go in among the crowd to try to, try to quell them, to you know, stop it. And his people pulled him back and said, no, 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 no. They're actually after you. They're trying to draw you out. They want to take care of you. Don't you dare go there. So the people picked up a, um, a spokesperson by the name of Alexander. But then the crowd realized that Alexander was a Jew. And so for two hours, it says, they chanted. Verse 34. When they recognized that Alexander, a city council guy, was a Jew, for two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just imagine the drama here. That means they started at 9.30 this morning. And they're still going. Over and over. A crowd of 5,000 people chanting. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And nobody can stop them. Violence is just one flashpoint away. And finally, the town clerk, Alexander, got them to quiet down and made an appeal that just followed the law. We have laws. If these two guys have broken a law, we'll take care of it. Don't be lawless here. Things calm down. Then we come into our passage today. Chapter 20, verse 1. Remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original text. So this wasn't a hanging ending in a television show. So you would tune in next week. It's the next sentence. The next sentence reads, After the uproar ceased, 
Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them said farewell and departed for Macedonia. In other words, Paul felt that his time here was up and that he needed to leave. Doesn't say why, but I think we could extrapolate. He doesn't want to be the flashpoint that puts his people in danger. And he has ministry to have. He's been talking about wanting to go elsewhere. You read that in Corinthians. You read that in other places. That he wants to continue his ministry. And this was probably the nudge that encouraged him to do that. And if you look at in verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 20. That word uproar is only used three times in the entire New Testament that Greek word. It's used here. And it means an uncontrollable hysterical mob. Any guesses where else it's used? Yes. The, the Jesus and Pilate. That's the word used when the crowd starts chanting, crucify him, crucify him. It's also used in Acts chapter 21 when Paul visited Jerusalem and brought a Greek into the temple. What was the definition again? Hmm? What was the definition again? Uncontrollable hysterical mob. That is the Greek word for that particular translation where we have the word uproar. In other words, it's a lot of angry people who are loud. And there's really no controlling them. So he sends for his disciples, he encourages them, and then says goodbye. Wow. He'd been there three years. That's a long time. That's a long time. There's a lot of deep roots that are placed here. So we have in the next verse, when he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Huh. These regions. Thank you so much for the map. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, your GPS and your phone ain't going to help you if you tell Siri, please take me to the regions. You're not going to find where you need to go. We can guess. And that's what these maps are at this point. Because if you look at your map, you see going from Ephesus up to Troas. Troas over to Neapolis or Philippi, Philippi over to Thessalonica, Thessalonica to Berea. Does that sound familiar? Because that's the pattern he followed before when he set up the churches in those areas. He went from region to region where he had been established. Now, that's not to say he didn't stop anywhere else. It's suggesting that he went to places where he was established and Let's see if you can guess why he was going to these places. What is he ultimate? Where is he ultimately headed? He wants to go to Rome. Hmm? Rome. No, to not to Rome. Rome. Spain. Spain. No, the other direction. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem with with an offering. So he's going to collect and. 
and, you know, encouraging them. Well, you know, if you're gathering funds for the church in Jerusalem, I will come by and pick them up. He may have sent them letters saying, I'm on my way. He didn't just show up and go, okay, let's take an offering. He didn't do that. He doesn't how he worked. But he's going to these known places. It also suggests that he's gone to some others. Now, remember last, uh, was it last week, two weeks ago? It was two weeks ago. When we were talking in um, chapter 15 of Romans about him going to Illyricum. Mm-hmm. You remember that? And we all were going, what's Illyricum? It's never anywhere in the Bible except here. Well, where is Illyricum on this map? You can't see it because it's not on the map. But it's above the word Macedonia to the northwest. If you just take a, like, take your finger, make a two-inch thing, and stick it on the corner of the zero at the edge of the map, that's Illyricum. Illyricum is modern-day Croatia, Bosnia, formerly Albania. That, catac- that place, scholars suggest that it's on this trip is when he went there. Because only a few months later, he's writing the book of Romans and refers to it chronologically. We haven't got to him writing the book of Romans yet. We haven't even gotten to verse 3. We're getting there. So remember I I said I was going to have to back up to get to where we need to go? So it would make sense. In fact, there is a road starting, ending in Thessalonica and Philippi, going west up through those mountains into a port just to the left of where this map runs. And that would be the Appian Way, the famous road from east to west from Rome all the way into the uh, eastern edge of Turkey. So, he's taken all this. It's very possible and very likely that during this trip, during this verse 2, is when he wrote 2 Corinthians. And when you read 2 Corinthians, he has met with Timothy. Timothy has brought back a positive report. They actually connected after Timothy's visit, after the bad letter that he had to write, the visit, things are, are, are good. So you have 2 Corinthians, which has a lot of encouragement saying, I'm so glad to hear that things are working out. You still have some things to work on, and here they are. So you have that, and that most likely is happening during this time frame. How long is this time frame? We have no idea. There's no time stamps here. We have no clock, no calendar. We really don't know exactly how long of a period. It could be six months for all we know. Until we get to verse 3. Because at the end of verse 2, it says, He came to Greece, which is Achaia, and there he spent three months. Now there's a comma here. I put a period there uh, 13 months ago because I said, we arrive in Corinth and he then writes the book of Romans. So if your assignment was to write the book of Romans, having never read it, having never written it before, could you write that book in three months? Oh, come on. Sure you can. No, just think about that. That, 
means, again, thinking about Paul and Paul's ministry. He's preaching and teaching these things every day and has been doing it for 20 years. And now here's that opportunity to lay it out in verbal form, right, you know, to a person who's writing down what he's saying, and then him to craft it and shape it and put it together and send it to a church that he's never visited. And that has established for us today. So technically, we can now start today's lesson. Because I brought you historically into this point in Acts. Paul has been in Corinth for three months and he's ready to go to Syria. Not to Jerusalem, but to Syria. What's in Syria? Where, why would he go there? What city is in Syria? Antioch. Antioch of Syria. And that's where Paul is from. And there's many who, would, who feel that Antioch was actually a stronger hub of early Christianity than Jerusalem was. Because they didn't have so much uh, conflict with the established uh, Judaism that they had in Jerusalem. But in Antioch, it was a wider city and less religious in that, in that regard. Also a stronger Gentile population. But it says he's wanting to go to Syria, but discovered a plot against him as he was about to set sail, and he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, I, you know, I love it when these kind of little things come up because my mind just goes into, ooh, what would be that? Let's write a story. Let's, 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 you know, figure out what happened. Again, we have no idea. So everything I say from this point is complete speculation. But it's fun, it's interesting to think what kind of plot would keep him from getting on the cruise ship? I'm, I'm sorry, the little, little tiny boat that he's gonna be on, the sailboat. More likely, the plot was when we get out in the middle of the ocean, we'll kill him and throw him overboard and say it was a big storm and oh, it was so sad. If I found out that that was going to be my, uh, my fate on next week's trip to North Carolina, I would take another route. No, I'm going to North Carolina next week. It's gonna be on American Airlines. And if I found out there was a plot to keep me from getting there on American Airlines, I'd probably choose another airline. Not many choices, but anyway. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't wanna drive. I'd have to leave tomorrow. But you see, you have to rethink your travel plans when there's something that says it's not going to work well. Uh, it's not, not good, so he just makes a choice. Now remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, verse 9, Paul talks about many adversaries. And that's when he was in Ephesians. I mean, sorry, in Ephesus. So he's in Ephesus. There are many adversaries. In Ephesus, there was a riot that almost got his people killed. Now he's over in Corinth a few months later and he hears about a plot that the Jews are trying to kill him. Everywhere this guy goes. You know, 
we don't think about Paul in this way very often. But he was in mortal danger every day. His whole pastoral ministry was upsetting the balance. He was not only getting the Jews upset, he was also getting the Gentiles upset for those who were pagans who worshipped their idols. This guy was not well loved. He was a controversial figure because he was preaching Christ crucified at every opportunity and Christ's resurrection. So Paul gathers seven men as part of his traveling crew and we have them listed here. Verses 4 uh, it's all in verse 4 actually all in verse 4 you've got Sopater the Berean he was just in Berea so maybe Sopater joined we don't know anything about this guy he's a son of Pyrrhus we really don't know, know which guy this is it's the only, invent, only time he's ever mentioned and he's also of the Thessalonians well that's interesting then you have Aristarchus. Aristarchus is one of the two that was drug out into the uh, theater in Acts chapter 19. Go look over there. You have in verse 29, they drug Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions. And here we have Aristarchus mentioned as one of his companions. So he's traveled with him from Ephesus. He probably wanted to get out of town too after having two, two hours of people shouting at him. And then Secondus. I did not know this. So came across you know, a variety of different commentaries and things. They said Secondus is actually a slave name. It's actually a common name that many slaves had. So you could be Secondus, you could be Secondus. What that meant in your household, you were not primus. You were not first. You were the number two slave in the household. That's what secondus meant. I didn't know that. Huh. Well, I'm primus, you're secondus. No, you're still a slave, dude. Uh, you just got, we have a hierarchy in this house and you just follow my lead. Then you have Gaius, which we just mentioned, of Derby. We also know of a Gaius in 1 Corinthians who was the host in that town. So most likely, Gaius was saved, well, not most likely, in 1 Corinthians 1.14. Paul baptizes Gaius in Corinth, then stays, Paul stays in Gaius's house. Gaius then travels with him to Ephesus, ends up being drug into the, t the theater in that city travels back home to Corinth with Paul and that's Gaius of Derby. we know who Timothy is Timothy's our our fellow companion mother Eunice and grandmother um, Lois who taught him the scriptures they were he was converted in Acts 14 and then the Asians that is not China and Japan that's how we would not name it. This is Asia Minor, meaning Turkey, Galatia, Ephesus, 
that area was called Asia at this time. They didn't know China existed. They didn't know Japan existed. This was their name for that region, was Asia. This is why when you're studying your scripture and you come across something like that, don't jump to the modern definition of the word. Find out what the biblical definition of the word at that time and what it meant. It changes the whole meaning of the passage. Because if I were to write in a letter to you today that I had two Asians in my company, you would immediately put them as coming from the East. You just would. That's just how we identify parts of the world. All right. So you have these two Asians, and I'm going to completely butcher his name, kind of like what we do every Sunday when we butcher these names that are up here. <laughs> um, it's either Tichicus or Tichicus. That fellow's named in Colossians as the one who carried the letter with Onesimus to Colossae. And tradition has him martyred in Crete because his name is mentioned in Titus 3.12 where they're on their way to Crete. And then Trophimus. Trophimus is the Gentile who traveled with Paul all the way to Jerusalem and was the one that Paul brought into the temple and created the uncontrollable mob in Jerusalem. So these seven people are unsung, to use today's sermon, unsung servants of the church. We know their names, but we don't rattle them off in our quiet times. We don't focus on them at all. But they were chosen by Paul for this task, to join him on his journey to Jerusalem. Verse 5. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, there's another little hidden thing in verses 5 and 6. Any idea what it is? I'm, I know that's a really unfair thing because I have the answer. And I don't know how to form the question so you can find it. Uh, that's not a good teacher. Um, it has to deal with the pronouns. It's us and we. Suddenly. We have not had us and we in Acts since chapter 16. Who's writing the book of Acts? Luke. Luke, not Paul. The last time we see we in Acts is in chapter 16 where it says Paul left Philippi and left Luke behind. And he left Philippi to go to Ephesus for three years. Ish. Three-ish. So Paul and Luke have not, for all we know, 
have not seen each other for three, three and a half years. This group has met up in Philippi on their way down to Corinth, obviously picked up Luke on the way, and now Luke is with the group and says these seven went on ahead to Troas, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. I just think that's a marvelous little, oh, wow, Luke's back in the picture. It also explains why some of the excruciating details of movement is missing, because Paul Luke wasn't there, and probably Paul just didn't tell it, so he didn't write about it. And it's unimportant to us. These, those details are for our speculation, but they're not that important. It's just interesting. Now, when are the days of the unleavened bread? Anybody? Passover. It's the, the week after Passover. So Passover is one day. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread is the balance of it. So now we know what time of year we are. It's one of our first time stamps. We just don't know which year, which calendar year, but we have an idea of what approximately the time of year that this is happening. And they stayed there. And five days later, they met them at Troas. So they stayed in Philippi for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread for a week. Then they leave on their boat to get to Troas. And you can see that little dot, the, dot, the dotted line on your map going from Philippi to Troas. And it took them five days. Well, it's interesting. The last time they took a trip from Philippi to Troas in chapter 16, it took two days. They were on a cruise. Yeah, they had had to uh, make a couple pit stops. Who knows? Maybe they were on a merchant ship that had more than one stop. Mm -hmm. Or they were were not on the express bus. Mm -hmm. So they had to stop every mile. You know, let people off, let people on. Who knows? Most of these boats were not very seafaring. Let's just put it gently. They were basically little wooden tubs. They might have a sail. They would have, you know, oars. And typically, those boats always needed line of sight to land. They would never go past the horizon because then they're out in the open water and they're really vulnerable. But if they can see land, they can start moving towards it if a squall is coming up, they can get out of the way. But in this era of you know, naval travel, usually it was around coastlines. You did not find a Christopher Columbus just heading out and hoping he runs into India. I mean, still, that for any of you who's ever thought about that, he had to be touched. I mean, that's crazy. Let's just let's just head west. 
I may never return, but yeah, who knows? I might run into India, wouldn't that be cool? And then I'll be a hero and the queen will think I'm great. Anyway, sorry, that was not in my notes. But anyway, took them, took them five days to get there and then they stayed in Troas for seven days. Verse seven, another interesting little tidbit in the life of the church. On the first day of the week, we gathered together to break bread. Stop right there. What day of the week? Sunday. Not Sabbath, not Saturday. This is Sunday. Wait, what? I thought they had to meet on Sabbath. No, they're meeting on the first day of the week now. Remember we had that conversation a few weeks ago? We were wondering when it became official and it wasn't made official as Sunday is the day of worship for the, uh, the church wasn't until uh, the 300s, Constantine's time. But this is an instance where it's indicated that they gathered on the first day of the week. It's not technically the first time chronologically it is referred to, but not in the form of breaking of bread. It's referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. It says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put together something aside and store it up, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now that's not an saying you worship on the first day. It's just simply saying, first day of the week, Set aside some money. That doesn't say meet together and break a bread. Chronologically, this is the first time that that's mentioned. Now, we could make a big deal of it. We shouldn't. I just pointed out to say there is a practice at this point in the early church of them meeting on Sunday. Now, I have read, I read an enormous amount of material on this, which I am not going to regurgitate to you other than to say it it is part of the larger context of moving uh, worship from Saturday the Sabbath Jewish Sabbath to Sunday now you grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church which meets on Saturday and they have a very strong argument saying that we should never have moved it and then we were talking just a little bit about it earlier and unfortunately, they started bringing a whole bunch of other things on top of it, which became a little bit challenging. Yeah, it was just very difficult. But they're still out there. There are still those who would make that case. You know, if Sunday is the only day that you worship God, you need to think twice. Maybe you need to think seven times. <laughs> because there is a spiritual element that if we are compartmentalizing our worship of our Lord only to the time when we gather together then I, I can understand some of it but it also means you're not immersing yourself in the life of Christ just a side note for you to think about so they gather together, they break bread, and Paul talked with them, according to the ESV. That lovely little Greek word is the Greek word dialegomai, or dialegomai, or dialogue. 
dialegomai, D-I-A-L-E-G-O-M-A-I, which means to engage in speech. So he's teaching them, intending to depart the next day. So they break, they gather together, probably at the end of the work day. If there are slaves who were part of a household, their work for that day is done. Those who were merchants, their work of the day is done. And they come together on the first day of the week to break bread together and listen to Paul teach. And he prolonged his teaching until midnight. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I haven't been in one of those lectures. You might think I'm about ready to do that, um, considering how far I've gotten so far in today's lesson. But seriously, think about that. He's teaching six hours now? Yeah. Does the meaning of dialogamai mean one person speaking two others? Or yes. Does it mean not what we talk dialogue where there's. Correct. Okay. In this particular case, it's engaging in speech. Okay. Now, there may be certain interruptions, but that's key because we're going to see a different word in a, couple, in a few minutes, meaning something different, but in the same situation. So he's teaching to midnight, says there are many lamps in the upper room where they're gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank in a deep sleep as Paul was talking still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. As one writer put it, he dropped out of class. But a book. That's perfect. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's really funny. Um, there have been some interesting uh, studies of this because the words sank into a deep sleep and being overcome by sleep are two different words and it's different stages. And you know what it's like. You're sitting in something and you, you, you find yourself twitching a little bit. You were telling me about the old chairs that were here at Camelback that kept falling apart and so he went there to screw them back together, now realizing the screws were too long. <laughs> which I tell him is the perfect thing for Eutychus because he would lean back over, oh, oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so anytime you saw people jerking during the service, you knew they were sitting in one of your chairs. Anyway, uh, I just think that's hilarious. Uh, the perfect, perfect thing. I mean, in old, old churches, the deacons of the church had long sticks and they would walk up and down the aisle during the sermon and they would reach down the pew and whack somebody who's falling asleep. That's where the nuns got up with, with the rulers. There you go. I mean, you just kind of go, you know, there are certain practices I'm glad they don't uh, keep going. But here's Eutychus. He can't stay awake. So I came across this commentary on the New Testament from the late 1600s. So it's a while ago. Written by a guy named William Burkitt, B-U-R-K-I-T-T. -T. 
his writing on the New Testament inspired Matthew Henry to write his commentary. George Whitfield says that reading Burkitt's New Testament commentary helped him to finally understand justification by faith in Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon recommended this commentary as a goodly volume for attentive perusal. And he was such an extraordinary man of God that he was chosen to preach the funeral of the famous Puritan William Gurnell who wrote the Christian Incomplete Armor. This is what he wrote about this passage and just listen to this. What a warning the Holy Ghost here leaves upon record for such as sleeping under the preaching of the word. Eutychus, when asleep under St. Paul's long sermon, falls down from the third loft and is taken up dead. Here note the time when he was overtaken with sleep, not at noonday, but at midnight. And it was not a sermon of an hour long that he was asleep under, but after St. Paul had preached several hours. This is not the case of our common sermon sleepers who at noonday sleep under the word. Nay, they settle and compose themselves to sleep and do what they can to invite sleep to them. What if with Eutychus any of them were to fall down dead? There's no Paul to raise them up. Or what if this wretched contempt of the word provoked God to say, sleep on? and be so stupefied that no ordinance shall ever wake you till the hells, the flames of hell, awake you. Okay, I'm listening. You just woke me up. Isn't that incredible? He's not holding back any punches. There was one fellow who uh, would go from various churches to church and preach revivals. And of course, these revival services could go a little long, especially in the evening. And he noticed at the back of one church, there were several pallets laid out. <laughs> and they were for the children because they didn't have childcare. And as you know, one child would fall asleep, the mom would get up, carry them back, lay them out, and go and sit down. And he said, there would be six or more children asleep in the back of the church. And one night, he said, I'm a better preacher than the Apostle Paul. Paul preached until midnight and only put one of them to sleep. I'm preaching just till nine o'clock and I already got six of them. <laughs> so I actually had to um, tease Pastor Jim about this passage after church today. So I went up to him and I said, yeah, you know, because we, we had had some exchanges about our collusion the last two weeks about at Romans 15 and 16, which he thought was absolutely hilarious. Um, you know, the coincidence of him talking about something when I'm going to be teaching it that same day. Um, I said there was one fellow who preached this. He said, I know for those of you in the congregation that if I go too long, or if I preach any longer, you're going to insist that I have to be able to raise the dead or that I promise to leave in the morning forever. <laughs> and that's 
how many people look at this? This fella fell off the third story window. That's a long way. I mean, this ceiling is 10 foot right there. That's another foot, so we have 11 feet right in the middle. Multiply that by three. Maybe two and a half because the window's gonna be in the middle of the third story. I don't care who you are. You fall that far and you're unconscious when you leave. You might start waking up by the time you hit the ground, but by then, it's done. You land on your back, you land on your head. It's fatal. And there are people who will say, oh, Eutychus didn't die. Well, Luke was there. Luke is a doctor. He's a physician. He knows dead when he sees it. And Eutychus was not a living being. It says Paul went down. Obviously, you know, if you're preaching and someone falls out the window, you're preaching. It's like you hear this, ah! You know, it's like, oh, you know, sermon's over. And he runs down there. He probably gets there first because he probably sees it happen in the back of the room. He bent over him, taking him in his arms, which is the same act that you see in Acts 9 when Peter raised Tabitha, in Mark 5 when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, when in Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings, there is this bodily movement or hugging or laying on them and then declares he's alive and he brought him back to life and the scripture just goes on ah, it's an everyday thing because it says he get, went back up and had a snack wow well, why isn't this raising from the dead being not touted and brought up and amplified? It's because that's not the point that the Holy Spirit is trying to make here. The point is that Jesus is trying, Jesus, Paul is trying to speak about Jesus to these people, knowing it's the last time he will see them. He's on his way out of town. He doesn't know that he will never come back, but it's going to be a while. And he never returns here again. It's about this church service because it says he conversed, and this is to your question, Carl. The word conversed is not the word dialegomai. It's a different word, homileo, which means a short, usually short teaching with a question. So like, you know, you heard of homilies. Homilies are intended to be a euphemism for preaching in many churches where it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So it, my guess for, use a modern phrase, it became a Q&A where Paul just said, Let's just keep going. Let's let's keep talking. You have some questions, and they're saying, "Well, what? tell us about the healing of God." Oh my goodness, we just saw this. What's going on? And they have this conversation for how long? He conversed with them a long while, 
until dawn. They've been at this for 12 hours. No one else fell asleep. No one else dared fall asleep. It's a 12-hour church service. And I'm sorry, I just I could not release that concept in my mind of how extraordinary this is. And we don't hear much about this little scene. But 12 hours with Paul. First hearing him for six hours preaching the gospel, preaching the, the message of the Old Testament. And now six more hours. And then it says, and they took the youth away alive and were quite comforted. That's just amazing. They didn't stop for breakfast. Well, maybe they did. But it says, verse 13, and going ahead to the ship, they set sail for Assos. And that's map number two. That you see, uh, in fact, if you were to, you wonder why in the very next verse, it says, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. In other words, he put all his disciples on the boat, said, I'll meet you there. Okay, how far is it from Troas to Assos? We can't tell when you look at the map. In fact, I had it wrong when I first did my notes, because I didn't look at geography very carefully. But you can take that little corner of the geography and you can put Troas right up here on, on the water and Assos is right over here. As a crow flies, it's 21 miles. Paul isn't a crow. It's a 31 mile journey along the coast and then across this way. And this section right here is a Roman road that's still there today. You can go visit the road that Paul walked on from Troas to Assos if you wanted. There's another road that goes further inland and around, but there's no direct walking route because there's a mountain right in here. So people walk around it. How long is it going to take you to walk 31 miles? Anyone? Well, if you go 20 miles a day. Two days, at least. I mean, just, I mean if you want to relapse and stuff, somebody yeah. could do 31 in one day. Yeah, someone could. They'd be dri walking all night, just kind of like driving all night. But unlikely he would be walking at night. So he took two days. What's he doing for two days? Considering what has just been happening, considering the massive miracle that occurred, considering he's communing with God, he's listening, he's spending time preparing for the, bat, for the, the next steps of the journey. That's all I could guess. But he sent his friends ahead and he met us at Assos. And we took him on board and went to Mytilene. Mytilene is a little further south, also a, um, um, a port city. 
and sailing from there we came the following day opposite Chios. Now on your map you see K-I-O-S in big capital letters. In your ESV you see C-H-I-O-S. Same word. They're just transliterating the, the, the or they're, they're translating the K into a CH for, for pronunciation purposes. But it's the same thing, it's an island. It's an island that's only eight miles off the coast and boats would travel in between them. They don't stop there, it's just a landmark. And the next day they touched at Samos. And you can see that island a further, further south and the day after that they go to Miletus and you can see where Miletus is. Now, here's a fun little thing just for your tickles and grins. On the second map, find Ephesus. Well, it's not there. Put it in. It's just north of Miletus, about 30 miles. So you can see it on your map on the left where Ephesus is and then you, you just kind of walk over and go, oh wait, right. it's right there. They could have stopped at Ephesus. Well, he didn't. It's intentional. In fact, when we get to our passage next week, he called for the elders from Ephesus to come to Miletus to have a, to have a conversation. In other words, he's not going to go back, even after a few months, to stir things up. He avoids Ephesus on this particular part of the journey, but he doesn't avoid the church. He just has them meet in a close-by neighborhood so they can have a conversation. And it says here, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for his hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. We just talked about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We just talked about you Passover and then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. 